Hello, hello. Welcome to the first episode of the Good Garbage Podcast. My name is Veth Krishna. My primary reason for existence has been to find ways to leave our wonderful planet cleaner. We will be speaking with material innovators, creators and propagators to learn from them how we can build for scale and towards a regenerative future. The idea behind the conversations is to explore ways in which our waste materials generate life. Their stories will help us answer the big question, what is good garbage? Our first guest needs no introduction. Bill McDonough in his 40 years has earned titles of hero of the planet, the father of circular economy. Alongside chemist Michael Bronkart, Bill spent a decade developing regenerative design model. His famous book Cradle to Cradle is based on that. His endless CV includes items such as receiving the presidential award for sustainable development, helping build NASA's sustainability base, and being named one of the world's 50 greatest leaders by Fortune magazine. He has been a personal mentor for me and a guide, and I am so excited about the conversation today. Welcome, welcome, Bill. Thank you for agreeing to be our first guest on the Good Garbage podcast. Uh, you know very well what you mean to us in our life and me personally. You've been my hero and inspiration, and I think. Uh, you know you are the person who has literally set me on this journey of finding better materials and trying to make a difference in terms of uh, leaving the world a little cleaner we you and i both know that uh, the world needs change at scale and when we look at uh, the possibilities of building materials uh, we look at so many people doing amazing things and the idea is that through these conversations uh we get more and more people connected and possibilities let possibilities emerge for enabling building of materials at scale so that's the basic idea and of course uh, the idea of good garbage is more from you than me that uh, everything that goes back into the earth becomes valuable and uh, regenerates uh, everything that we have uh, the same as what nature does uh, so you know that you've been such an inspiration in my life uh, you know your work literally transformed the way i think and uh, the way we run our businesses and uh, it's just uh, it's just such an honor to actually have you uh, be here and uh, talk to us uh, about your thinking so i'm going to i'm going to start diving in into the little research we did uh on your work and uh, you know the the years of work you've put in one thing really shouts out bill and i have no idea how you do this and this is where i'm going to start how are you so relentless and positive you've just done one thing after another and after another and literally for these i would say 50 years uh just gone on relentlessly despite various uh there could have been uh opposition and there could have been you know criticism and whatever but it just shouts out when we look at your work that you know where does this relentlessness come from and how did that get so uh, seeped into you i think my persistence came from childhood growing up in different countries and and realizing we are all one and we all need want and love the same things really if this work is not about those things then we need something else to do yes i do 100 things at once but i do them one at a time 
and some of them take a long time. So, of course, you've had this, like you mentioned, uh, this childhood. I know that you were born in Japan and then lived in different parts of the world. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Because that's a, that's a part that even I don't know. Well, going back to Japan, my clearest memories as a child were going to bed. And we would get into a hot bathtub in the winter and, uh, well, all year, every night because everybody shared the same hot water and it was all one fire shared by everybody. So you were clean first, then you went in, you got warm and then you went into uh, your futon and you're warm and you're your own water bottle, you know, and you go to sleep. But at two o'clock in the morning, the farmers would come to collect our sewage to take it to the farms. And we would hear these big oak wheels coming across and clack, 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 and they'd wake us up and we're little kids. And my mother would come in and put us back to sleep. And the way she did it was to sing songs in Japanese about the honey wagons and uh, the night soil and all this. And you're a little tiny kid and your mother's singing you poop songs <laughs> in the middle of the night. I mean, this is heaven. Amazing. Yeah. This is heaven. So I want to jump here a little bit. And... Uh... I think the first conversation we had, uh, you told this amazing story of uh, you being on the uh, at the deathbed of Prabhupada. So, so you know, I want to and how that shaped your thinking. That's an absolutely stunning story, and I think that would make us dive into the material side of the conversation. So, I would love for you to tell the audience the same story and uh, like in as much detail as you possibly can remember. Well, I, I was 25 years old, and I had been asked by a, a community in Pennsylvania, a Hindu community, to think about how to design a village in the States, and because my brother was one of those devotees. And so I became very curious. I, I realized I needed to learn more about Hindu architecture. So I decided to go to India, and I joined up with a series of various devotees, and we went with begging bowls. Their devotion was so intense. And I was sort of still in trying to understand what I'm going to be doing as an architect, which is very real, this. So as we went around, we stayed with people, and they were, they were wonderfully hospitable either at every level, everywhere. Yep. And it was beautiful. And as I evolved into getting ready to do the sustainability work that later took me to Rio de Janeiro or writing the Hanover Principles or doing all these things, there was this discussion going on about the fortune at the bottom of the pyramid. And it was driving me crazy because it was, it was how to make money from the super poor. I was like, wait a second, is that the question? Really? They're the super poor, you know? What is that? And when you look at modern Western commerce, especially, the question seems to be how much can I get for how little I give? The question I'm interested in is, how much can we give for all that we get? A question of abundance and generosity. And then when I got to see Prabhupada, there was a, I went to Vrindavan and they introduced me to him. And I went in and we talked. And uh, he started talking about how I was sensitive to these beliefs, but I was going to be in the material world. That my destiny was in the material world. I was a warrior. Right. <laughs> he said, you're going to go change the material world. And then I sat for a long time and he was very quiet. 
so after a while, I thought maybe it fell asleep. So I quietly left. And then uh, somebody came out and said that he had passed on. And then they said, what did he say? What did he say? And that's what he said. Go forth. Yeah. <laughs> so. And just 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 so that I know that a lot of people wouldn't know Prabhupada, but, yeah. you know, he was the founder of this Hare Krishna right. uh, movement and, you know, big person. And yeah. uh, you were the last person to actually you you had his last words. Literally. Well, yeah. And uh, and then some... that that is that is huge. I don't know yeah. about that. It was very humble situation, actually. So but just just to take a cue from that. You've built so many amazing buildings and structures, but how did this whole uh, idea of going beyond architecture and looking at materials and looking at how they impact? Yeah, so how did that happen? What, what, if you can remember, what was that switch or what motivated that idea that you want to do beyond architecture and buildings? When I was at Yale in the School of Architecture, I had a very famous architect come to my desk and say, what are you working on here? And I said, I'm designing a solar heated house for Ireland. And he said, young man, solar energy has nothing to do with architecture. I found that a little bit jarring, but that idea that what I was doing was silly didn't stick with me. So I went and built that and I built it by hand you know, that was physically difficult, but it was also, I'd never built before, but I wanted to build my first building myself just because I didn't want to have to, I didn't want to be telling people how to do things unless I tried it myself. When I decided I want to build my own the kitchen for the house and I went and got a local cabinet maker. And so he knew how to make things that were just out of wood that were so exquisite because they start with the tree. You know, you got to go find the grain that can do this. And it was amazing. And then he taught me how to make my own planes because he said, you have to make your own tools. If you're going, I'm going to teach you, you, know, you have to make your tools first. So this idea of building tools that's held with me. So about every 10 years, I put down my tools and, and just like the cabinet maker, you have to make your own tools because depending on what it is you wish to make, I need tools because I want to make things people have never seen before. So I need different tools. So I actually start by making tools and then we, then we'll move into that next thing. So even in green building, we needed tools. So we created the US green building council, we created this you know, committee on the environment. We figured out how to look at light and color temperature. We figured out how to change paint. So we didn't have the poison. We got the, the carpet glues to be safe. We went started going after things. So I need tools. In that case, chemistry and physics. And then it occurred to me, I was looking at a fire burning because I went to school in New Hampshire, an old school in the woods, you know, surrounded by trees. And so we had fireplaces. So there's a fire burning. I thought, oh, there's entropy, everything going to chaos, never to return. Right? So then I thought, well, what would be the opposite? of entropy. What would be negative entropy? And so I went to the library and I couldn't find it. I get back to the dorm and then I realized that I was in the wrong library. I was in the physics library looking for something that disobeys the laws of physics. So I realized that the log itself was negative entropy. 
See, the entropy came from something that had been negatively entropic, had been a gathering of things and, and order out of chaos so that we could then put it back into chaos. So then I thought, well, if that's right, then there's the sun, which is entropic, right? It's a lot of explosion going on there. And then we get the entropic input of photons, okay? Hits the dead rock in space, looks like Venus, and it has rocks and water, that's it. So now the sun hits rocks and water, and then something strange happens, which is biology. So physics meets chemistry and we get biology. And all of a sudden life itself is order out of chaos. And we are therefore order out of chaos. So then I thought, well, all right, that makes sense. I wanna go make beautiful things. But if I ever designed buildings, I didn't know I wanted to go in architecture then. I just said, but if I ever did, I'm going to design buildings like trees because think about what a tree can do and how could I design a building that everybody's talking about being less bad or this, that, or the other thing, but, you know, less emissions or something. They, trees love to emit things. They emit fruit, they emit color, they emit bird song, they emit distilled water. I mean, come on. So I'm going to design buildings like that. So that's what happened. And then all of a sudden, I couldn't have a building if I didn't have the right lighting. I couldn't have the right lighting if I didn't have the right colors. I couldn't have the right colors, but they were all made out of heavy metals. You know, it just kept going. Taking your very example of a tree, and I am so inspired by that because it blends in so well into the material space. And you, yes. I think, talked about it somewhere as well. So if, if yes. you look at photosynthesis, it's not just carbon dioxide and oxygen. It's, right. it's also about taking all the carbon in and creating these amazing sugar molecules and fibers. Right. And yes, there are some minerals that come out of the soil, but, but ultimately that huge tree trunk is created from thin air. So how does one do that in the material space? How do you see the future? Is it possible that we act in the same way as nature? and take uh, sunshine and carbon and photosynthesize and create fibers instead of smashing trees up and uh, taking the cellulose? Do you think that's possible? It's a, at this point in history, given our cultural needs and expectations as well, and the fact that we live in an economically driven world with the subtraction of, of money, yes, we can, it's a great dream and it is a fundamental one. But what's interesting for us now is that we can come back and say, well, wait a minute, if we used the same thinking, we could make packaging out of cellulosics from agricultural secondaries. And if we have to use some chemical things that we learn how to do, even with, with uh, petrochemicals, is see them as feedstocks, that it's hydrocarbon, which is water and carbon, and it's, carbohydrate, which is oh, carbon and water. So to me, it's all one thing. And if we can figure out how to heal the soil while we make packaging, what? And that we could also use it as, as, as part of our soil amendments. So everything's nutrient. I think that's the direction that I'm excited about seeing happen. So my challenge uh, comes a lot that we sometimes look at final products as being uh, something that can go back to the soil and enhance it or not. But 
we many times ignore the process. So, so let me draw a parallel with nature. So again, uh, you know, if you look at the production system of nature, say of trees, it takes in singular energy, solar, and uh, it takes in carbon from uh, the air and minerals from the soil and it turns them into fruit and uh, oxygen and you know this whole ecosystem that exists so the whole process of production is very earth friendly or it's actually as you call it it's a regenerative biosphere when we do it say we are taking a waste we are still going to be using a lot of water a lot of energy um, yeah and then converting it into some sort of packaging or cellulosic material. Right. So do you, right. have you, have you pondered on this? And is that yeah. something that, yeah, is, is that a direction that you've been thinking on, uh, how to improve our processes, not just the product? Oh, definitely. And also like when we look at even the idea of compostable, not just biodegradable, but compostable all the way to hydrogen, carbon, oxygen, um, so that we don't have microplastics or, the various kinds of uh, concerning residue, uh, the systems are not in place to manage it, but the systems aren't in place to manage the plastics either. So I think that we've gone headlong into our production systems without really looking at the idea of waste equals food. Because the fundamental notion is you, even as a business person, if you stop and think about it, Producing waste is, is not a commercial meant, uh, model. It's like you're making something that is a cost. Why would you make something you can't sell? You would think the logic would be that you would actually optimize all the elements of something. And what happens when you start to do this is that actually is what's happening. What happens? It's a beautiful thing because in nature, like those trees, a lot of what they do is they go, they do littering is what they do. They're very, they're dispersing leaves and cherry blossoms, I don't know, around themselves to be a regenerative biosphere. They're not exporting it halfway around the world. So, so I think that the idea of being able to focus on local, 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 local becomes important to this discussion. And if you think about it, like uh, we had a famous politician say, Tip O'Neill from the Congress. He said, uh, you know, all politics is local and all sustainability is local. This idea of using offsets today is, a, is coming under serious consideration because offsets that are done far away, it may work if you're just, if you're into carbon dioxide offsets and you're dealing with something that's big and it's planetary, like uh, the atmosphere, you know, I can understand how it happened that we'd say, save the carbon wherever you are, that'll help everything. Yeah, that's, that's a good idea. The, the problem is, as we realize that various things at various places at various times for various durations become toxic, right? So water can be highly toxic if I surround you with it for six minutes. It can be highly toxic if you jump out of an airplane, hit it at terminal velocity. That'd be a very big dose, very small duration. But um, the, it's dose duration, so on and so forth. But at, in the atmosphere, carbon dioxide made by humans is now a toxin. Right? And so really we've got to see it that way. And 
and that's fugitive carbon you put there. Then we have plastics in the ocean are also fugitive carbon, but they're durable carbon. So that's, that's their problem. But we are anthropic people and whoosh, there it is. So as we look at the future, I think we can think about packaging if it's dignified safe, but it would mean literally saying this is a nutrient and it can be used for various purposes. And as long as it's gonna be used by humans, we can call it being part of the technosphere, whether it's plastic or metal or cellulosics. If it's in use for human intention, I call that the technosphere because we're looking for some nature to provide us with service, right? We want the metals to make a thing that we use. So we should not confuse that with the biosphere. And we do, even our language confuses it. We talk about modern design, we go, we're designing for end of life. It was like, what? Think about that, what that would mean in the biosphere. We're designing for the end of life. What? Really? Right? It's like, it's crazy language. But it's just, it evolved because people were talking about life cycle assessment and they used the human projection on an inanimate object and said, what's the end of life of this thing? Yeah, hello? not alive. Nope. So this, this borosilicate does not have an end of life. It's not living, but it does have an end of use. And if I finish with it or I break it, then it really has an end of use. And then the question is not end of life. It's end of use. That's the technosphere. It's objects of human utility and intention. Well, if I can't use it as a glass, it's broken. Can I use the glass? So if I make plastic things, can I use the plastic? Right? So when I design, I don't design for end of life, I design for end of use. And if, once you design for end of use, you say, well, wait a minute, what's happening at the end of use? Oh, the next use. <laughs> because we're not cradle to grave, that's like putting it in the landfill, or cradle to crematorium, that's like putting it you know, in an incinerator even you know, waste energy, all kinds of things never designed to be burned. You know, they're problematic. So I think we designed for next use. That's the technosphere. Great. And then the biosphere, to your point, is a thing that wants to be nurtured. It's nurture, the biosphere. So that means the, the paper, we don't want to contaminate with toxic ink or adhesives and things like that. And if we're going to get it back, I think the transition for the next 50, 100 years will be that we can use it again as cellulose. We do recycle paper and we have recycling systems for our paper. So we can say, yes, there is a chain of custody known as paper and we already know how to do paper. But then the question is, what do we do about fugitives? The stuff we never planned. We, we, we understood obsolescence, but we never really planned the obsolescence itself. We just plan for things to be obsolescent. It's really crazy. We plan for that washing machine to break down so you need another one. Are there other things you think can be done at the same scale as petroleum? Yes, yes, because, because and it's important, these two things are connected because the, uh, we have now taken solar energy to scale. So when I was the Dean of the architecture here in Virginia, and I wanted to put solar collectors on our building, you know, we priced them, they were $10 a watt. 
uh, that's what they are. So for instance, you know, the collector, that was then 20 years ago. Today, it's well below a dollar and on its way to the cost of paper. I mean, it's truly amazing how the price collapse of the photovoltaic has enabled things. They're now looking in the deserts at orders for solar collectors that are at the level of 1.5 cents a kilowatt hour, which is, you know, literally uh, a 20th of what we were looking at then, you know. So now we can start talking about, well, what happens if it's cheaper than fossil fuels? And then we realize that if we see this future and we start designing into it, we don't just renovate our internal combustion engines and think we're circular or something. What we're doing is we're going to shift most of the small scale transportation, certainly to electric motors. So really now copper becomes the question. And so now the, the question is copper, lithium, the batteries, so on and so forth. So it's a, it's a material question now, not the energy question. So as far as the, the hydrocarbons becoming hydrogen carbon, we will want hydrogen for large scale thermal loads, steel, concrete, uh, heating factories, you know, things like that. The sun can do certain things, but not big thermal loads per se, easily. So we'll see that. And that's why we need the hydrogen. But then the MISTA, it's clearly the stuff I've seen when we've been able to do something big as a change, like when we did the largest green roof in the world, Ford Motor Company, very cost effective. And the reason is we were focusing not on operating costs or anything, you know, nature, whatever, all fine. We were focused on clean water and the law. And the law said you had to have three chemical treatment plants and 70 operators standing by electric motors in case it rains. Well, we didn't have to do that because we did it with green roofs and so on. And we saved for $35 million up front. So the economics are drive this stuff. Because once somebody sees the economics, they go, well, then it's obvious. And the reason it's going to be obvious in hydrogen is actually the infrastructure we've already built to do natural gas. And if we can get the price to be cheaper than burning natural gas because of carbon pricing or because of we'd rather make graphene, you know, because it's more economical to make the hydrocarbon into hydrogen carbon than it is to burn it, on and on and on. Yeah, and then I, of course, my hope is the similar sort of situation of material for material. So, just my last question now: What does good garbage uh, mean to you? Shami Lerner was the mayor of Curitiba, Brazil, in 1973. One of the things he did that was so beautiful—I mean, really beautiful—was he created a program called "Garbage That's Not Garbage." To this point. Right. And so for me, good garbage is the elimination of the concept of garbage. It isn't just this or that. It's actually an, a different understanding and seeing of it. By saying garbage and not garbage, he was talking to the children because he was trying to design a city that loved its children. See, that's why this all comes together for me. Those little kids chewing on the furniture in the daycare center in Frankfurt. It's like, how do you love your children when they're chewing on toxic things? It doesn't make sense. How do you do offsets 
and take care of the children. I mean, let's exaggerate for effect. We have children in Flint, Michigan that have toxic water now because of lead poisoning. And what are you going to do, offset the lead poisoning, really? I mean, you don't go to some other city and take out lead and say, hey, kids in Flint, we've offset your lead. You're lead neutral. What a ridiculous statement. you got to take care of the children. So anyway, he, he did that. And so this idea of garbage to that garbage made it fun. And he created a mobility system. And then he trained all the kids because they had the favelas. They couldn't get garbage trucks in to take out the garbage. So he said to everybody, look, we can't afford to send trucks in to help you like we would anybody else. So I'll tell you what, you collect it, bring it up and put it in the right bins, right? This is food waste. This is wire. This is paper, right? This is plastic. You sort it. And if you sort it, we'll pay you in mobility because he created an above ground subway system, basically. It was a bus system. And so you got bus tokens for your trash. So if you want to have a job, you could get to a job. He's creating money. He's creating value, right? He said, let's take all the low-lying parts where people you know, do informal dwellings because they don't know where to go. We shouldn't have them in the lowlands because it floods and it's dangerous for them. So why don't we say we're not going to build down here? We're going to make community farms and gardens. And so if you want food, you can get free transportation to any one of these places. And if you put four hours of work in for a day, helping in the community farm, you will be paid in enough food for your entire family. And if you need more, we'll give you more for your neighbor. So let's grow food locally. And then guess what? The garbage that's being collected, all the food waste and packaging, for example, we might make, then that can go to this community farms. It can almost go in a trailer on the back of the bus. And so all of a sudden you see the city is a living organism and, and, and the people are part of the organism itself. So for me, garbage that's not garbage is one thing. But I guess the main thing I would say in terms of helping people know what to do would be, uh, one, is don't just minimize waste. Eliminate the concept of waste. So Hanover Principle, number six. If you can't put it back into the circular economy as a technical object that's safe and healthy and upcycled, or you can't put it in the soil safely or do anything useful with it as a as a biological nutrient, then you should, we consider that refuse. And that is garbage that is looking and waiting for us to figure out what to do with it. It's such a comprehensive definition that you provided. It's such a, it's such a joy. Thank you for gracing us here and thank you for all your wisdom and sharing. And uh, I look forward to following a little bit in your footsteps and uh, making a little difference as we go along. Thank you so much, Bill. Thank you for being here for us. Well, that's my privilege. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this first exploration. We look forward to bringing you more and more ideas with guests in the coming weeks. Watch out for this space.